The Letterbox Show is presented by Regal Unlimited's March Movie Mania. Listen up, cinephiles. This one's for you. The true all-you-can-watch subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. And if you sign up during March Movie Mania, you'll receive a free popcorn and Pepsi. See any standard movie anytime with no blackout dates or restrictions. And when you want to watch a movie in a premium format like 40X, IMAX, RPX, or ScreenX, your Regal Unlimited membership gets you into those premium experiences at a reduced cost. And with Regal Unlimited, you won't just save money on tickets, you'll also save on snacks. Members get 10% off all non-alcoholic concession items. And now, through Regal's March Movie Mania offer, you'll receive a free popcorn and Pepsi when you sign up for Regal Unlimited. You can sign up now on the Regal app or at regmovies.com unlimited. That's regmovies.com unlimited. And don't forget, terms and conditions apply. And now on to the show. This week on Best in Show, we go on cinema with the one and only Greg Turkington at the Indie Spirit Awards and pump up the 50 cent with Anatomy of a Fall director, Justine Trier. Hello, hello, and welcome to Best in Show, a limited podcast series brought to you by The Letterboxd Show. I am Mia Levicino, the West Coast editor here at Letterboxd, and Best in Show is all about awards season. We meet contenders from this year's movies, we interrogate insiders about the film ecosystem, and we look into that Letterboxd data. But mostly, we do what we always do here at Letterboxd. Celebrate cinema. And joining me are my best in-show besties, our editor-in-chief, Gemma Gracewood. I wish they all could be California girls. I am one right now. And our very, very booked and busy Hollywood veteran and editorial producer, Brian Formo. I'm just here so I don't get fined. <laughs> That's a Marshawn Lynch joke. I'm already oh, setting it up. Oh <laughs> my gosh. Indie Spirit nominee Marshawn Lynch. So what's exciting this episode is that we all actually get to record here in Los Angeles, California. Gemma, how does it feel? I am jacked up on so much moon powder and turmeric. Uh, it's coursing through my system right now. I can't lie. It's very... Very nice to be here. And I do feel like I'm in an episode of The Muppet Show because, Mia, you're, you're above me. You're, you're on a level above me right now physically. It's kind of like that intro. It's time to meet the music. It's time to light the lights. And it was just, it was such a bright, bright light that I was in being with you all on Sunday at the Indie Spirit Awards together on the blue carpet on the beautiful Santa Monica Beach. It was so wonderful. But I, I'm jumping ahead, aren't I? Oh, don't worry, we will get all up in that indie spirit. But before we do that, we've got to recap the night before, which were the Screen Actors Guild or the SAG Awards. Well, this year they're important because it was uh, Netflix's first live streaming event ever. So that, I honestly, I think that and obviously getting a new deal for uh, the Screen Actors. Also, being live streamed on basically one of the biggest people cutting them out of money for a long time as well. So it's an interesting party. You're just like the calls coming from within inside the ward show. <laughs> I I mean, I was kind of wondering about like the lack of ad breaks. Um, and I guess we'll come to that when we talk about the spirits, because you were inside the tent of the spirits, Brian, which were also streamed. It's 
you know, it's really we're in we're in a new age. We're in a new era for for at home awards enthusiasts. Okay, so the SAGs are also important because they are major precursors for the acting Oscars because these are voted on by actors and for actors. So the big winners were pretty expected for the most part. It was Killian Murphy and Robert Downey Jr. for Oppenheimer, Dave I and Joy Randolph for the holdovers. But then, but then, <gasps> but then, Gemma, but then, what happened? Yes. Well, importantly, after she was not nominated in the BAFTAs and Emma Stone won for Poor Things. Lily Gladstone came through for Killers of the Flower Moon. I mean, uh, you know, she she already picked up the Golden Globe for that. That was already historic. Um, this, again, is a historic win in terms of the SAG Awards and in terms of, I, I guess, acting in general and, and the in, in incredibly complex history of of actors and actresses passing in Hollywood rather than being able to fully embody who they are, where they come from, the language they've grown up with, um, so on and so forth. And she is, she is the the heart, soul, and the and the absolute spine of Martin Scorsese's movie, Killers of the Flower Moon. You know, this is a role that was pumped up in the second, you know, passing of the script from FBI procedural to absolute devastating love story and unraveling for Molly Burkhart. It's it's important. It's awesome. It's definitely going to be interesting at the Oscars um, to see whether it will be Emma or Lily. I, I hate that. We've talked about this before. We just hate it. Uh, it should just be both. But anyway, it was uh, that was that was the highlight, I think, of the SAG night for me. So that was also the highlight for me. I'm so, so, so happy for Lily Gladstone. And it is just such a tight race. It's so neck and neck. So I was like really on the edge of my seat during that. And you know what? Her win also helped to offset how bored I was with the Oppenheimer ensemble win. You know, (laughs) I mean, going from last year, seeing the very diverse everything everywhere all at once ensemble up on that stage. That was so cool. And now we're Back to seeing a stage full of white boys who did an amazing job, but it's still just a a little bit of a bummer, especially when we have to see Casey Affleck up there and Robert Downey Jr. just went out of his way to thank Mel Gibson in his supporting actor acceptance speech for some reason. So I would have I would have really loved to see the Killers of the Flower Moon ensemble up there. But then again, because of the SAG rules in regards to billing and credits and everything, it would have still been the more established white cast, such as Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro, Brendan Fraser, and Jesse Plemons, and even John Lithgow receiving trophies rather than the stellar indigenous cast. The only indigenous cast of killers to get that award would have been Lily and Tantu Cardinal, which is such a shame because, again, they are the total backbone of that story. If if listeners or viewers at home are, are wondering how they determine that, you know, you hear the phrase above the line, below the line all the time. Uh, it's actually about where you are in the line. So like if your name is above someone else's name in the cast, i.e. you share space with them in the credits, you don't get a single line, then you're not eligible. It's a very strange distinction that oftentimes passes over the very, um, the less established. I think people started to key into this a little more when Get Out was up for it and Betty Gabriel, who's obviously very famous for the no, 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 no. Like she wasn't eligible. There were only like four people eligible because most people shared space in their credits. So this is this is contract stuff, right? This is what yep. agents and managers negotiate at the outset. So what they're negotiating when they're negotiating 
this kind of thing is they're negotiating potential awards outcomes. It's starts a long, long, long time. That's why everyone thanks their agent. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, okay, here's the thing. Lily may not have gotten to go up there for the best ensemble win, but she won a different award that maybe means even more. It is the Letterboxd Award for a cutest picture with Kelly Reichardt. Have y'all seen that on our socials? The great Gemma Gracewood took that picture. <laughs> seen it. I took it. Oh, man. <laughs> I took so many pictures of them. I have never been more excited to see two people hugging and catching up in my life. Uh, honestly, Kelly Reichardt was at the Indie Spirits because showing up was honoured at the Spirits. It won the Robert Altman Award for Best Ensemble. Showing up, quick few words about how much you love it, Mia. Oh, as an Oregon girly, I love, love, loved showing up. It's, I mean, it's, it's not just about Oregon, but it's about a woman artist who's kind of prickly, um, making her way in the world, fighting with her landlord, who's played by Hong Chow incredibly. It's just like, um, I don't want to call it slight at all, but it is a more low stakes, um, comfy story than others. And and I really, really would love to rewatch it. Ryan? And as someone who, uh, I ran a DIY art space in Olympia, Washington, which is, you know, like a Portland cousin uh, that this film spoke so true to me, particularly how just it is mostly about just showing up at everyone's function to view it and drink all the free wine. And you're like there and you're like, what next? But you just have to show up. And that's what this is about. <laughs> that is that is also the indie spirit, right? Is, is, is being in your community, showing up, supporting each other, uh, being prickly, but, you know, still turning up. Um, and I, I just, th I wanted to ask you what you both thought of showing up, because I do think while we're celebrating these awards, you know, we also here at Best in Show celebrate cinema and every now and then it's nice to just stop and go, hey, I loved that film. I loved that film. So if showing up has been sitting on your watch list, can you do best and show a favor and get it off your watch list by this time next week? And drop us an email at podcast at letterbox.com and tell us that you loved it. Um, don't drop us an email if you didn't. There is a pigeon in that film that gives an amazing performance. It should have been up on that stage accepting the award for best <laughs> ensemble. Not even to mention the cat. Like pigeon and a cat. Just saying, just saying. And for past lives fans, there is a John Magaro as well. Oh, of yes. course. John yes. Magaro. We love you, past lives, white boy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back to the show, the show itself. Um, so we, as press, we were in the press room. We didn't really get to see much of the show um, how, because the winners are coming into the press room. It's very hectic. It's very chaotic. However, we did get to see A.D. Bryant's wonderful opening monologue because no winners had been announced yet. So there are no winners in the press room yet. And I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I loved how she called the indie spirits the bisexual Oscars. Like, that's what I'm going to start referring to it from now on. And I also loved when she busted out that Charles Melton shirt later on. Uh, <laughs> and then when he busted out an A.D. Bryant shirt. Yes, uh, yes. It was the best. It was the best. Absolutely. So those were those were some of my highlights from what I was able to catch in that mm -hmm. press room tent. Um, oh, and another highlight was our best in show bestie, Sammy Birch, winning best first screenplay for May, December. Oh, I'm so happy for her. She is incredible. So what were some of y'all's highlights from the show? Well, just going, uh, jumping immediately to a little bit later, because we got to go to the after party. Mia, you and I interviewed Sammy for Best in Show. And then like, this is a total name drop, but this is 
One of the exciting things kind of about how an award season plays out is having spoken to her so long ago and then being able to just roll up to her and go, Sammy, that was amazing. Congratulations. How did it feel? You know, was your brain buzzing? And she's basically said it should be illegal to have to have that many pairs of eyes looking at you in a room. <laughs> like major <laughs> introvert vibes. It was super cute. I loved that. I also loved Jeffrey Wright winning for American Fiction. I haven't really talked about this film much since I finally saw it, but I love, love, love his very low-key emo comedy in American <laughs> Fiction. It's like... It's, it could be really easy to read it as a, a totally serious portrayal, but he he just nails the very, very subtle tonal shifts that that film needs. And I adored. I adored that performance and adored Cord Jefferson's winning screenplay. Um, Brian, you were in the Spirits Tent itself. So you were probably able to hear his speech, which I didn't. Tell us about Jeffrey Wright. Uh, well, he, I mean, not only did he win best leading performance, but he definitely won best speech of the night. Uh, and at, at a time, you know, the the show was running a, a little long. People were a little feeling a little on edge or uneasy uh, for reasons that we'll get to later. Uh, but we needed a moment of levity and Jeffrey Wright brought it because, okay, Mia, you said, you know, the SAG Awards were predictable we talked about BAFTAs. We've talked about Critics' Choice. We've talked about all these things, and a lot of them are doing doing everything quite similar. <laughs> and there's a lot of awards. Some would say too many. I would be in that camp. The Spirit Awards, I don't think, fall into that camp because they actually frequently award films that aren't awarded by these other groups who just kind of mm-hmm. keep giving Robert Downey Jr. a trophy <laughs> everywhere he goes. Even though he keeps failing to write a speech. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Jeffrey Jeffrey Wright starts. He has been invited to all of these this year. He's been up for Best Actor pretty much everywhere. And the first thing he said was, "Wow, an award show is a lot different when you actually win." <laughs> and he's like, "The vibes just like change, and like you just get paraded around the world to kind of just, especially when there aren't commercial breaks, just like sit and lose for a couple hours and then go drink somewhere." And so like this, this was a. Uh, this was a this was a great and very very well deserved uh, moment for for him. He his his career is amazing. His performance is is great. Um, and the the room you could kind of just feel like kind of falling uh, re falling in love with him while he was speaking. And this was a a very nice moment for him. And it, I think it created kind of a segue to the the rest of the show to kind of get back to where it's supposed to be, which is. Uh, yeah, awarding people for their work. And so that Jeffrey Jeffrey Wright was the highlight in the tent. Yes. May I share my favorite speech, please? Please. Mm-hmm. So, Justine Trier won Best International Film for Anatomy of a Fall. And Ooh. in her speech, she shouted out LA as the city of Jenna Rollins and John Cassavetes. Naturally, I enjoyed that quite a bit. Oh, wait, Mia, are you a Cassavetes fan? I wasn't aware. Oh, I don't know. Who's that guy? It's not like I've been married to his ghost for 30 years or anything uh, weird like that. Um, <laughs> it does remind me that uh, I, I need to remind listeners that we do have a very special interview with Justine coming up very, very soon. Keep listening. Sorry, Mia, you were you were saying? Oh, yes, it's true. It's true. And Justine and I queened out about 
that very subject in our interview. Um, and the Spirits are perhaps my favorite awards show because they are the only one to have a category honoring said ghost husband, John Cassavetes, which goes to the best film made on a budget of under $1 million. Oh, which also reminds me again, again, so many reminders that we also have a very special interview after Justine with one of the stars of the Cassavetes winning film, Fremont. Uh, you're going to want to stay to the end of the show for that, especially if you are a fan of On Cinema. Yes, yes, it's true. I wish I had gotten a chance to ask that guest the question I was asking everyone on the Spirits carpet, which was in honor of the Altman and Cassavetes Awards. Which filmmaking legend do you prefer, Robert Altman or John Cassavetes? Zoe Lister-Jones had a fantastic answer. Take a listen. God, I love them both, but I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go Cassavetes. I mean, I think that just for my voice personally as an artist, he's been a huge inspiration, the way that he delves into the nuances of relationships. Um, And I think his work as a multi-hyphenate has always been incredibly inspirational to me. Um, And he's like great at all the things, which is very rare. I want to ask you something, Brian, because you were in the tent and we were not. Um, uh, you know, that's fine. Um, hope your lunch was nice. Ours was actually great. Um, no complaints. Love you, film independent. Over the other side of the tent from where we were, much of the ceremony was interrupted by a small and loud group of activists, which um, those of us in the press tent, because we were too far away, we could hear the commotion, but it took us a while to actually make out what was going on and we couldn't get around there if we tried because security were preventing us from doing that. Um, Transpired that it was a a, a small group with a very loud hailer calling for a ceasefire in Gaza and this could be heard in the tent and on the live stream. So around the world, uh, you know, successful protest technique. In the press tent, like I say, we could hear but not see or clearly make it out. But in the main awards tent, Brian, it must have been quite a different vibe altogether. I, I, I read and heard from a couple of people, more so on the photo side uh, of the red carpet, that the, the the protest actually started then, but the red carpet was so noisy that people didn't register it. But uh, during the show, about 10 minutes into the show, it wasn't at the start. Yeah, it started to hear an ongoing chant, uh, carried on for a very long time for uh Free Palestine, ceasefire now, long live Palestine was uh, the majority of the repeated refrain. And it was repeated uh, throughout the entire show. About After about 15 minutes, I was like, wow, this this guy has stamina. So I went out and actually <laughs> and looked and it was it was playing on loop from a megaphone, uh, which made, made sense. Uh, but when it initially started, uh, Jim Gaffigan was presenting and you could tell that he was flustered and wasn't sure if he was supposed to continue, uh, if if he was supposed to acknowledge what was going on or, or any of that. He powered through. Uh, I don't know. He's used to hecklers as a comedian, perhaps. Uh, you mentioned Fremont. The director of Fremont, Babak Jabali, was one of the few people receiving a trophy that acknowledged the protester outside. He he started his acceptance speech by saying, whatever I have to say is not as important as what the man out there has to say. He is an Iranian filmmaker. Uh, It largely was met with applause. There was also a 
pretty severe amount of booze that I think kind of mm. set that that itself just shows the uh, that the tent probably had some divisions mm. about whether this was uh, whether this was disruptive of their day or a good reminder of what is going on in the world. I saw a tweet from Carl Buchanan, the award stalwart at the New York Times, and he was also able to get out that side of the tent to capture footage of a large bus being rolled backwards in front of the protesters to, to you know, to sit between them and the tent. Kyle wrote, cognitive dissonance is required when atrocities happen during an awards season. Hell, there's even a Best Picture nominee about that kind of cognitive dissonance. But after two seasons where Ukraine came up at every awards show, it's notable what isn't being talked about now. Really interesting, eh? And I think that um, definitely being on the carpet, it, it, it was visual aids that a lot of filmmakers were using to e- express um, their desire for ceasefire. Um, you know, one filmmaker was wearing a kefir. A lot of filmmakers were wearing the ceasefire badge that Mark Ruffalo described the purpose of in one fantastic video that's been going around. Um, the Best Picture nominee that Kyle Buchanan refers to is the zone of interest, of course, uh, but it actually could be many of the films up for various Oscars this year. And so when the zone of interest producers came down the carpet, I, I did take a moment to talk to them about this weird annual phenomenon of films that are made completely in isolation from each other, but that end up in conversation with each other. So, you know, I'm not just talking about Barbie and poor things and fish out of water and, you know, I want to be a real girl. Oppenheimer and Zone, obvious examples of films that speak to each other this season. But for me, it's also The Boy and the Heron and The Zone of Interest. Um, the, the, The Tokyo Fires, which are mentioned in Oppenheimer, you know, begin the boy and the heron. And then the the boy and the heron has a key line around how forgetting is normal. And the zone of interest similarly considers how normal and tragic forgetting is and how we must not forget. And so here's zone of interest producer Jim Wilson's response. Yeah, I mean, and also I hadn't thought of it so much in terms of what you said about the boy and the heron, but that's very insightful. I mean, I've thought about in terms of Oppenheimer and of course, Killers of the Flower Moon to a degree of films that are about films that are about um, vi- violence uh, having a, at some in some way stage or reflect uh, enormous violence perpetrated on other people um, uh, people who in some way shape or form need to have been slightly dehumanized for that for that mass violence to have occurred against Native Americans, against Jews, Jewish people in Europe, against uh, Japanese civilians in um, in Oppenheimer, and our relationship to that, uh, and and I think you're right, and I think that is reflected in the zone of interest, and it's reflected in the world now. You know who we care about and who we don't, and that in order to allow violence to be enacted on those people, we have to in some even if it's in a small way, not quite, not like Nazis living next to Auschwitz, we have to dehumanize them. We have to think of them as slightly less human than we are to do that. And it does feel that that's in the discourse in those films, yeah. And in the world right now, given and in the world right in Gaza and Israel. 
I really appreciate that Jim took the time to say all of that. The cognitive dissonance is real and it's an extraordinary privilege to speak to one of the producers of of such an extraordinary film uh, about what so many of us are, are not talking about. Um, yeah, why can't we all just love each other? I know, no, I know. And that's actually what uh, Celine Song was talking about in her press room speech. Celine Song won Best Director and also Best Feature for Past Lives. And when she was asked for advice for a first-time filmmaker, she said the key is surrounding yourself with the people you love and who love you. As her producers, Christine Vachon and Pamela Koffler, stood proudly by. Oh, their loving gazes during that moment were, I, I have a photo of that as well. I have many photos from that day, Lily and Kelly. But you can see in this photo, Christine and Pamela are just, ah, oh, they love Celine. They're just, yeah, producers, eh? Actually, I do. I mean, with uh, Christine and Pamela, we could name drop throughout this show about a lot of people that we met. But uh, congratulating Christine Vachon after and also Pamela Koffler's daughter who I was talking to in a coffee line. And uh, that was actually the highlight of my interactions, despite all the stars around me. Although one of those was Anne Hathaway also congratulating Christine. So there, I got my name drop in there. But Dark Waters, that's underrated, you guys. Uh, You should watch it. Uh, It's a it's it's a hit in this household. I walked past Christine Vachon and that is a like for many, many, many years, I have been wanting to be in the same room, let alone the same breathing the same air as Christine Vachon and Brian, I couldn't, I totally froze. I couldn't, I had nothing. I know like, all you have to do is say, congratulations. That was amazing. (laughs) And I couldn't do it. I was so shy. I love her so much. And not to mention Killer Films is also behind May, December. So they did both Past Lives and May, December this year. That's incredible. Those were two of my favorite films of the year. I, I worship I worship them. And we worship, obviously, Christine Vachon uh, and other producers. Uh, we love you. Uh, we must mention, we must, because uh, it's in, or other, we must, otherwise I'll get fined, uh, that the PGAs <laughs> were also on Sunday night. Oppenheimer won again. Oppenheimer won PGA. It usually predicts best picture. So Emma Thomas better have a whole new wonderful speech prepared. She is giving a lot of good speeches. Oh, she is. The PGAs are the Producers Guild Awards for anyone who's not an acronym, you know. They're uh, they're Sean Fennessy's group for for all of our Sean Fennessy fans. That's his uh that's the one he belongs to and he loves it. But back to the spirits. Uh, they're actually one of the few awards where producers are specifically called out for an award other than best picture. The Spirits have a producer's award because indie film takes a lot of extra producing. The winner this year was Monique Walton. She produced Coleman Domingo's other fantastic film of the year, Sing Sing. He's being nominated. uh, He's nominated for an Oscar for Rustin, but Sing Sing debuted at TIFF, but it's also playing at South by Southwest uh, in in a couple of days in March. Gemma. I know you're endlessly curious about how producers and directors find each other and how they make their relationship rock solid through the many, many, many ups and downs of filmmaking, especially on a lower budget with smaller crews, fewer resources. It is, it's not for the faint of heart. I've, I've done it. I've tried to do it. And, um, it is producers, uh, just so pivotal to indie film. So I did, I did indeed make it my mission uh, to ask a few producers and directors at the Indie Spirits about this intensely unique working relationship, um, which is both business and creative. It's not easy. And I mean, 
back to zone of interest that, you know, 10 different cameras in a house filming in the original location, like there's a lot of tender stuff going on there. So I was especially keen to talk with um, Jim Wilson and Eva Pushchinska, uh, Jonathan Glazer's producers, especially because he's been so scarce um, during this award season. So I took a moment to ask them to elaborate on how they worked with Jonathan and supported him beyond the typical producery things of financing the film. You know, it's the whole the time you have to support your director. It's not only about, as you said, about money. It's, you know, to be with him so he feels safe. You know, he knows that he can count on us. So he, he can, we, we are just there to help him, you know, to make his vision on the screen. This is exactly what he wants. And that's about trust and support, I think. Yeah. I think this in general, you asked about directors in general, John's a good example because his um, process is particularly uh, organic. It's about um, finding and always looking and always, he calls it like turning the soil. Like you're always trying to make it better, look, look deeper, dig deeper, turn the soil over and over. And sometimes the process of our business, which is the logic of money really is not like that, isn't it? Because time is money and money runs out. So the thing about working with directors in general, and I think John specifically, is about exactly having that, um, trying to protect that, the time and the space to allow that that process to happen and having faith and and trust in it. Jim Wilson is so right about curating and finding the right people. I am so glad. We found each other here at Best in Show. I love my Best in Show besties. <laughs> you know who else loves each other? The um, three people who produced Kokomo City, director Dee Smith and her lovely co-producers, Harris Doran and Bill Butler. They were up for Best Documentary at the Spirits. Four Daughters won. Congratulations to Four Daughters. Um, but here are the three, Dee and Harris and Bill, uh, with their take on what it takes to support a director as a producer. I mean, knowledge. Knowledge truly is power. And I think both of them being so honest and transparent with with what my possibilities were and, and, and just the reality of making films, I think that was priceless. You know, I when I first sent uh, Harris the film, what I deemed as done, you know, he sent me a shitload of notes that that let me know I wasn't done. But it was in the most profound, uh, gratifying way. And that was the start of a beautiful, beautiful uh, business relationship. And this icon, I couldn't ask for a better uh, partnership between them two. I, it's just it's impossible. I mean, the thing that's great about Dee is that she's an extraordinary artist who is open. You know, and so she has enough confidence in her own voice to be able to take notes, to be able to listen, and also know like what to take and what not to take, and be able to filter it through. And that is an extraordinary talent, and someone who like really knows themselves to be able to do it. And so that the movie that was created is like so fully her voice, you know. But she was able to like listen to, um, you know, other thoughts in order to try and help her voice come through even more. And so I would say that that's a rare quality in an artist. And she also was like. Um, so multifaceted and like the amount of things that she is able to do at such a high level that that's just an extraordinarily rare person I think as they both said you have to have an opinion and you know and so we would share our opinion sometimes we all have the same opinion which always fabulous but sometimes it was like huh and we'd have a real conversation 
But at the end of the day, I think we both believe it was getting her vision on the screen. Like, you know, this was inside of her. Ooh, getting that vision on screen, getting that vision on air. Ooh, the producer's job is a hard one. And Brian, that's what you do. So because you are also a stellar producer, you got to get out of here. Go fulfill your vision. We've got the Oscars ahead of us and you've got a tux to rent. I've, I've got to rent a tux or I'm going to get fined. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. It's the dress code. You keep mentioning you're going to get fined. I, I'm guessing you haven't really had a moment to mention your favorite, favorite moment of the Indie Spirits. Could you please, just before you run off to rent that tux, what was it like to meet Marshawn Lynch in person? I mean, it was the type of thing you kind of had to seize because uh, who knows how many films he's going to be in. It's probably, this might be one of the few times I'm ever in a room with him, but I grew up a Seahawks fan uh, during the terrible years. They're six years old, or when I was six years old, I constantly... I basically every paraphernalia that I have on on the Christmas tree for that my parents were getting me and also like all my old Halloween costumes were all Seahawks stuff, but they were terrible back then. But they won a Super Bowl with Marshawn Lynch and I cracked a rib celebrating it. And I told him that and he said, it's all good, man. (laughs) So (laughs) uh, talked a little more, but I was I, I don't get starstruck. I don't know. This wouldn't qualify as starstruck. It just like there is a different um I grew up with sports and we call this as movie sports and I'm, I'm, I'm super calm around movie people, but, uh, sports were my original, original, uh, they were the original stars for, to me. So like, that was, that was kind of just like meeting, uh, the, the supernova. Go rent that tax or you're going to get fined. Go, go, go. <laughs> For a deeper dive into the support a director needs, especially directors who still have to fight to get their budgets and their most desired cast, we thought we would take our questions to the only woman to be nominated for directing at the Oscars this year. The Magnifique, Justine Trier. Opening night. That is my favorite film of all time. I have this tattoo of Jenna Rollins and everything. Yeah, I love that movie. So I was so excited that you picked it. And so I feel like I have to ask, did that film influence Anatomy of a Fall at all in any way? I think this movie has influenced all my movies since the beginning. I think I remembered when I was 15 in my in my house I at home, the, the movie was in, on TV and... I didn't understand anything, but I was like, wow, it's, it's possible to do something like this. It's possible. It, it's exi- it exists. It was really a shock. And after I'm, I watched it again in the theaters and, and yes, I think there is a kind of mystery, uh, for me around this movie and around a lot of movies from Casavetes, of course. And, uh, you cannot summarize this film. On just the topic of, yes, sorry, aging, aging, or you know, it's it's more, it's always more, and uh, yeah, it's I'm I, each time I'm just before diving in in new in a new shooting, I need to to get some food uh, from from this movie and the color and everything, the camera, the yeah. 
I, I love to hear that. I noticed some similarities between that film's main character, Myrtle Gordon, and Sandra, just in the sense that, you know, neither of them are angelic angels, angelic angels. Um, yeah. but, and that's what makes them so compelling to watch. And I really, really appreciated that. In fact, all of your Thank protagonists you. are these smart, complicated women. Um, and again, like these are the characters I'm drawn to. Um, I don't care for those perfect angel types as much. Mm-hmm. Like I prefer women like, uh, Wanda from Barbara Loden's Wanda. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. so why are you drawn to bringing life to these types of women? I don't know if it's because I'm a woman, woman, me, myself. I don't know. I think I'm just interested by what I'm, uh, really close. To, how do you say? Sorry. Je m'intéresse à ce qui, ce qui me semble être, euh, passionnant, à ce qui me passionne, à ce qui me, pas forcément ce qui me ressemble, mais ce qui me concerne à un endroit, ce qui résonne. Sorry, I'm interesting in... So, in something that, that brings the passion out in me, not necessarily that is about myself, but something that compels me to, to explore. And, uh, yes, and sometimes, yes, in the... Not now, because now it's the beginning of a huge revolution for women. So, mm-hmm. since Me Too, we, we, we can see some changement. But before, yes, women were, was a little sometime, um, uh, we presented in just binaries, uh, uh, you know, um, representation. Yeah. So, so I try to just, yeah, to, to, to give to women, uh, the, the, the same very interesting part and character has, uh, men or uh, have always had always have. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry for my English. No, no, no. <laughs> you are doing great. And I mean, on, on the topic of women, I mean, Justine, you are the eighth woman ever to be nominated for best director at the <gasps> Oscars. That is incredible. Not to mention the first French woman. And meanwhile, at the, at the Césars, you know, three women are nominated for best director this year. So yeah. France has his beat on that. So what does it mean for you to be scoring these nominations, both, you know, at your home and over here in the U.S.? It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> Um, I'm super proud. And in the same time, I'm, I think it's not enough, uh, because, uh, it's still, it's, it's still a topic, a subject. And I, I, I hope that one day, I don't know when it, it would be uh, not, you know, uh, the point, but just a normal thing because we represent more than half of the humanity. So <laughs> I don't understand why uh, it's like this, but yeah, we, 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 there is some changement very slowly, very slowly and slowly. But, uh, I'm, of course, for myself, I'm super proud, but I'm very curious about how the young generation uh, could, uh, really be involved in this and the young women who are, who have now, I don't know, 15, uh, 20 years ago, you know, 20 years old. Sorry. <laughs> well, I'm excited for all the young women who are watching this film and loving it and are being inspired to make their own. So you oh, are, thank you. you are leading the change. That is incredible. Oh, thank you so and much. while we are on the topic of awards, this mm-hmm. is, um, this is something we like to ask everybody, which is mm-hmm. what was the first award you ever won? Does not have to be for filmmaking. It was, I think, uh, for the piano because I, I learned the piano when I was a kid. So. I was very bad at the solfege. How do you say? A theory. Very, I was not good at school, you know, but I was good in just doing and playing, you know, and, uh, I remember, I remember that, uh, I was bad in everything except piano. <laughs> so it was my fierté. Sorry. It's her pride. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So is your love of piano part of why that's included in Anatomy of a Fall? Yeah. Yeah, and, and in each movie that I made, uh, all the time I'm learning some, the, 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 the same uh, song. I'm, the piano is really important in my life. And uh, uh, I love the relation very direct to the um, instrument. It's so easy. It's so simple. Sometimes when you are doing movies, it's so wonderful. And but it's, you know, you have to 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 talk a lot. And and I love so much this relationship with uh, not relationship. Yes, yes, relationship with the with, with this. It's yeah. To get back to Casavetes, yes, I was very influenced by all the um, score of Bo Hardwood. Uh, he did all the score of uh, a woman of under the influence and the, and well, honestly it's it's really impressive because he was not uh, a professional of uh, he was not an invented you know it's like it's like Casavetes <laughs> the way he was doing piano was the same that as Casavetes was doing uh, movies it was um, always uh, uh, like a new wave I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And now we can start digging more into uh, yeah. Anatomy of the Fall, which yeah. is what we're here for. So yeah, yeah. making movies is such a collaborative process. Mm-hmm. And I would really love to hear about your relationship with your producers who help you bring this to life, especially in the context of this film. Yeah, it was really funny in a way, because, you know, before this movie, I was just produced by David Thion. I, <laughs> uh, Marianne, yeah, came in the game and I created this uh, marriage, you know, between David and, and her, Marianne Buciani. And it was really interesting because I wrote the movie with Arthur and he's my life partner. So it was, you know, a discussion between two couples in a way, you know, and uh, they were very, very involved. Like I never lived this kind of, well, yes, relationship before with producers because um, it was intense. We were, we were in the pandemic time and, you know, we were so alone in our bubbles and, uh, but we stay in touch all the time with, uh, with the Zoom all the time. <laughs> and for them, it was really, really cool because we were so, uh, available all the time, you no, know? <laughs> night and day. So we did a lot of versions of this movie. And after, no, uh, without joking, I think, uh, on set and after they, they were so honest. And I, I asked this to my producer. I don't want to have somebody who's just, you know, uh, how do you say, carissé on the, Telling them what they want to hear. Yeah, I love when when it's really discussions about uh, and argue and not arguments. So and we were struggling with all this material, you know. And I need to I needed to have some really somebody um, in front of me. And uh, yeah, they were so generous and so patient with me because sometimes I was really down, you know. <laughs> and uh, sometimes I was afraid of this film, of this film because you know. Now it's it's so beautiful. It's a fairy tale. But when we were in the writing process, sometimes I was afraid to, yeah, because um, it was a little dark, you know, the the the, the story. So yeah. I mean, speaking of darkness, I was just rewatching it, and I something I wrote in my notes was the judicial system was not set up to protect women. It is there to protect men in power. Um, and you have made a couple of films involving the courtroom. Um, so is this a statement that you perhaps agree with? Yeah, what I love a lot with uh, the courtroom and the trials, it's, I think it's not for me just a quick, 
to criticize the law system. I think it's the society, the case of the society. And not just men, but sometimes men and women, unfortunately, who are much more tougher, tougher with, with, uh, with women. Yes. When, and when they are, they are not the perfect victim, when they are not the perfect, uh, uh, you know, um, sweet little things really, uh, crying all the time and, uh, it's much more difficult. And I think Sandra embodies all this thing because she's, um, successful. She's powerful in life. She's, uh, uh, she has, uh, her own personal sexuality. She has her own way of living and she's not apologized for anything. And I think she's much more attacked because, uh, she's, uh, uh, you know, she's really like, okay, I'm, I'm like this. I'm, I'm this woman and I, I'm okay with this and I don't want to play for you the, the weak, no, sorry, the, yes, the weak women. The, uh, weak? weak? La, la, no, no, la femme faible, sorry. Yeah, the weak woman. The weak woman, sorry. <laughs> I think Sandra bring this in this movie. She, she, she bring this on, on set. I wrote this character, but she brings something more, much more free that, I could imagine before. And, um, and yes, of course, in the trial, it's really interesting because people judge you for everything and you have to justify for everything. And she has to justify herself much more for way of living, much more than just for, uh, objective, objective reason. Oh, absolutely. I mean, another thing that really struck me was this alienation that Sandra is feeling in the court because, you yeah. know, she is this German woman who speaks English, but is made to speak French, which is really uncomfortable for her. And, you know, you're multilingual yourself. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts about language as both a bridge and a barrier between human connection. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think languages in this movie is really, uh, embodies all the difficulties between the, the couple, you know, between her and him. And, uh, yes, she, she has all these languages and at the same time it's play, it plays against her at the trial. I think it's, it adds some l filters between her and the reality. And, um, in that case, precisely, I think people, could think that she can mani manipulate every everybody because she's you know she's a storyteller she's a, she's a writer so you know it it was really interesting to 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 play with that this card uh, with this cards sorry and um and yeah of course in this movie i think words it's a, it's the defeat of words at the end i think really this i think you you we try to 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 come to come closer to the truth and to grab the truth, but you can, you cannot. And you are always like, okay, you can just be, you know, around, but you cannot really, uh, and the words try, but it's, uh, it's always a defeated. And, uh, you know, I was obsessed by the image of uh, this movie of Antonioni, um, uh, sorry, blow up, you know, yes. uh, and you have, you have this photography, uh, with the murderer inside the photography at the end. Sorry for the spectator who, who didn't watch the movie. And I was obsessed by this because at the beginning of my movie, you are too close. You are, you are too close to the family, to the truth, to everything. You don't understand. It's like if I just put an image so close to your eyes, you say, Oh, I don't know. I have to put it. And after you have, you are too far away. So all the movie is a question of perception and you are, you have, you are not at the good place at the right moment. 
and you have to just and the trial is there is this is there sorry to to recreate the good uh, perception the good distance but you are always not uh at the good place you know Yes. I have one final question. Yeah. And of course, it is about Messi the dog. <laughs> <laughs> He is incredible. I got to meet him the other day at the Oscars luncheon. Uh, and I just want to know how you found this dog that's such a star and was also snubbed for Best Supporting Actor, I will say, at the Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it was a really important meeting with my first assistant. And I remember exactly because, you know, I, I worked a lot with different um, animals before in pre my previous movie with a monkey, with a... I had a lot of experience with uh, with animals and it could be really a nightmare. And this time I said to my first assistant, okay, please, we have to, to find a way to not uh, play the game of the industry, you know, the, 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 the perfect French industry, because sometimes, I don't know if, I'm not sure if it's a good word, but okay. To find somebody much more uh, a site and who have, who has a few animals, not a lot. And we find Laura. And Laura was so, Laura Martin, she was, she had, she had very few, just two dogs, I think. And, uh, and she was really, really available to prepare a lot, uh, um, Snoop. So we spent a lot of time with her to explain exactly the, the famous scene with, with when he faked uh, the, the dead, the dead uh, dog. <laughs> and, uh, it, it takes, it took, sorry, a lot of time. To, to, so it was a really wonderful collaboration with her and not just, you know, I didn't want to, to take him like an accessory for, for actors, but like really an actor and really a, a gaze and, a, and the gaze of, of uh, dogs are always interesting. Jean-Luc Godard says something very funny about this. He said, okay, actors sometimes plays very badly, badly, but dogs could not cheat could not, you know, uh, be bad in set. And I think, yes. While we're on the topic of Anatomy of a Fool's superstar dog, Messi, we at the Indie Spirits got to talk to Rutting in the Sun star Jordan Firstman about how the dog from that film, Shima, deserves more of the spotlight. Always love more dog content here at Best yeah, in Show. Listen amazing. up. We have an amazing dog too that has been under-recognized in this awards race because Chima, Chima ate, ate. Chima licked a shit-covered double-sided dildo and rotting in the sun. And no, she's shaking her head. Oh, God, gross. This is the Indie Spirit Awards. We can say stuff like that. Yeah. Shima ate. And now we're about to. Welcome to Winner Winner Turkington Dinner. Wait, wait, what happened to the chickens? Oh, Gemma, I am always asking that question. So get this. We found a turkey instead. We bumped into On Cinema's very own Greg Turkington backstage at the Indie Spirit Awards. I mean, I knew this because I was there. We did. And I whipped out that letterbox show microphone faster than a chicken runs from a chicken pot pie machine that's being chased by Emma Stone, who's being chased by an award season paparazzo. Um, I don't know. I hope award season insiders got that joke. Um, but anyway. <laughs> It's an incredible photo of Emma Stone with a chicken pot pie. That is my new phone wallpaper. Look it up if you haven't seen it. It's incredible. So we love to see girls eating mushroom bowls. We really do. But back to Greg. Back to Greg with our letterbox microphone. We found out what he thinks of all of this award season hubbub as an Oscars obsessive courtesy of On Cinema. 
Have a listen. We've just run into Greg Turkington, co-host of On Cinema, gearing up for an Oscars special, I hear. Which is like purely secret, but we ran into you, Greg, because we just saw you on the stage as part of the winning team of the... another Greg. No, I'm just here looking because they were giving away swag bags with movies and I needed to get some of these movies, but they turned out to be on um, Blu-ray, so... I just threw them in that trash can behind you. We like the VHS tapes because the stability of the tape is beyond reproach. Okay, without giving too many secrets away because you have your own podcast all about this, what do you make of all this awards palaver? Well, I think they need to have the Oscars four times a year because there's so many movies coming out and they all deserve awards. So I think four times a year with sort of mini Oscars every month then you take the winners from the three months of mini Oscars, and then you have the real Oscars um, every quarter. And then at the end of the year, the Oscars, what's known as the Oscars now, is then pitting those things against each other. So it's like a mega Oscars. Oh, I've got a good question for you, just to finish us off. It is our favorite question at Best in Show. Greg Turkington, what is the first prize or ribbon or medal you ever won? And what was it for? I won the... Um, Accuracy in Film Criticism Award from the National Association of uh, Film Expertise and Criticism. And how how old were you when you won this award? I won it. Well, I've won it several years in a row. So, but how old how old were you? Like seven, eleven, fourteen? I think I was in. I think I was in my early twenties when I first won it. It was when I first published my first review. And then since then, now I've been winning it a lot. It's it's pretty cool. Mia, I think apart from when we were leaving and we were told to just wait right here because he's in the bathrooms. And I was like, who's in the bathrooms? And then Andrew Scott emerged in his incredible yellowy lime neon suit to say hello to us. Um, I do think that Greg Turkington was my Indie Spirits highlight. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I cannot believe we got jump scared by the hot priest coming out of a porta potty. <laughs> Um, that, I mean, that, that just has to be our number one highlight, but Greg, Greg, we love you very much. Thank you. Thank you for talking to us, fellow tar heads slash tar heels. Oh yes. I'm glad you mentioned that because for the purposes of chicken run dinner, we did ask Greg what awards winner, historic awards winner he has watched lately. And um, basically all he's been watching is tar, tar, tar. All those Tar rewatches, Lydia Tar doing her thing. And he was talking about how he didn't realize it was a comedy from the marketing. I don't think many people did. People still think she's a real person, uh, which she is. Lydia Tar is I mean, real. Which she is. Lydia Tar is real. I'm looking forward to seeing her at the Oscars. And, and with that, we have um, fulfilled, uh, we do not get fined this episode for not mentioning Tar in an episode of Best in Shows. So we have fulfilled our contract and uh, we, <laughs> we can depart. Thank you so much for listening to Best in Show. We'd love you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word as we get closer and closer to the Oscars. Just one week to go, two episodes to go. Uh, next episode will be a, just a good old chat about movies and snubs. I am looking forward to that. And then we will have one more wrap-up recap and with that I, I hope Mia award season will be over is it over or do the do the Writers Guild uh, have something to say about that oh the Writers Guild are coming in hot in 
April. That is actually the cap of the award season, not the Oscars. Lest we forget, we love the Writers Guild. Follow us and our Awards HQ on Letterboxd using the link in our episode notes and drop us mailbag questions to podcast at letterboxd.com. There is a carrier pigeon awaiting. The pigeon from showing up. The pigeon from showing up is waiting to deliver your mail to us. If you have any questions at all for us, any questions about the season, I think those would be good. Like, looking back, what have been like the biggest surprises or whatever. And and I guess a few uh, last minute suggestions for categories for the Brad Moses Awards, which will be our own special awards ceremony in our final episode. Um, send them, send them along. Let's hear them. Please don't disappoint Brad and Mose, those beloved cats. Thank you to our crew, Slim for the edit, Sophie for production, Trent Walton for the music, George Fennick for newslettering, Danny Haas for the art, the entire Letterbox content team for all the extra, extra good stuff, and to you for listening. Best in Show is a Tape Deck production. I was going to say, Best in Show is a Tape Greg Turkington production, just for Slim. Podcast.